Welcome to episode 269 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. This episode marks the four-year anniversary of Stageworthy. I've loved having this opportunity to talk to theatre makers from all over Canada, and I'm looking forward to continuing the podcast into the future. If you've enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. If you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings help new people find the show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 269 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is actor, artist, teacher, and cultural activist, Brenda Camino. We were just sort of before I hit hit the button talking about um, all of the new things that we're all having to to learn mm-hmm. uh, Zoom and and how to get around our weak internet connections and all the things that we can do. Um, how new was all of that for you when all of this started? Um, it was relatively new. I mean, actors in general in Canada have been uh, accustomed to having to uh, do some self-tapes, particularly if one is on location or is in a different city from what is being cast. Uh, so we've gotten used to being able to um, self-tape uh, and then to somehow get it to where it's supposed to go. So uh, it, it was it was, you know, still on the, the higher side of technology that I really didn't want to have to get used to because I'm not <laughs> honestly. And I kept trying all kinds of things with a tablet and my crappy little mm. cell phone and, uh, and stuff. But I found that my laptop actually gave me the best picture, the best uh, yeah. quality sound. And uh, as long as, you know, we were doing that, that was fine. But then people started to get fussier about what you were sending. <laughs> what's really yes. unfortunate is that uh, a lot of actors just uh, don't have the wherewithal to isolate, like we have to isolate in order to do sound, but to isolate yeah. uh, um, and get rid of all the extraneous uh, background, the bookcases, the kitchenware, uh, in order to uh, give someone a clean recording. And I think it's so unfair now because casting agents – now ask for something. Um, they say get yourself a good camera. They say uh, make sure we don't you you tape it in a certain um, you know with a certain amount of uh, what we can see of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want distractions. They want it done horizontally. They want it done with good sound. They want all of this stuff and good lighting. And yeah. all of a sudden, uh, the actor is being put upon to number one provide. Uh, the equipment so casting people don't have to um, hire someone to read with you they don't have to hire a camera mm-hmm. band. they don't have to rent a studio they don't have to uh, uh, restrict themselves to only five people to come in and see for yeah. those roles they could ask for a hundred and then pick the best five to present so you know I think it's all working in um, productions favor and not for the actor it's really tough for the actor yeah. Not only not only is it with with that is there an expectation that you have the means to purchase exactly. a good like some kind of strange boom mic that you never mm-hmm. considered having to get a good camera um, that you have to rearrange your apartment which you were supposed to be living in not 
doing Not auditions in. Exactly. Exactly. I no, worry I then that that when this is all over, that just like a lot of offices are deciding that they're going to go work from home, that casting agents might decide that, well, this whole self-tape at home thing, that's working out really well for us. And that's unfortunate because I've helped out a couple of uh, friends who don't have the wherewithal to do this. So I will loan them my cell phone or I will set up my kitchen so that they can come in and, you know, safely do their audition and send, and I will send it in for them. So it's really tough because, you know, let's face it, uh, we're all performers. We're, we're pretty well broke all the time unless you do a lot of commercials and, and yeah. that sort of thing. That's the other thing, though. And a lot of uh, voice uh, actors these days uh, the ones who do a lot of voiceovers, they've set up their own studio. So they have their little, um, you know, those things that you buy to put behind you so you can deaden the sound. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So they have their own studios at home so that they sure. can do the radio uh, and the voiceover commercial things going on. And it's it's uh, it's fortunate for them that they can afford it. And their whole livelihood is their voice. So they have to get the good mic and they have to get the baffles and they have to have a space that's uh, dedicated for that sort of thing. Absolutely. Uh, on the other side, actors, most of us never considered that we would be needing all of that stuff. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I you don't know. know about you, but I've uh, gone out and bought myself a light, um, and, which isn't very good. Um, <laughs> and just had to make sure that my uh, computer is, is always popped up so that I can do all my auditions in it. You have to go yeah. up to my curtain for the back, uh, for your backdrop. You have to uh, figure out all kinds of things. And then like you, you know, you and I have been sharing the fact that you sometimes can't keep the house quiet enough to do all that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so many things. Um, <laughs> now, Brenda, I was looking at, at your, you have a Wikipedia page. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, I um, do. I do. do. <laughs> um, I don't often get the chance to talk to people who have a Wikipedia page. Um, and of course, there's always the chance that Wikipedia is wrong because Wikipedia. But you've done, excuse my French, you've done a shit ton of of work um well i'm a pretty old lady now you know (laughs) well i mean there's i guess the 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 thing that i would say is actually is there anything that you feel like you haven't had the opportunity to do um i i've gotten my 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 share of good acting roles uh roles that i've really loved doing um i've had my share of uh challenges as far as that goes. I've been able to do the the advocacy work. I've been able to do uh, the teaching and the coaching, which I absolutely love. But I guess maybe what I'm most missing is to be able to go out and uh, perform roles, especially in theater, where it doesn't require me to be Asian. Mm. Uh, Mm. Weird thing to have to talk about in this day and age. But uh, if you were to take a look at my uh, theater um, resume, I would say nine out of ten performances, you'd be able to tell that I was Asian. You wouldn't even Mm. have to see my picture. Right. And I think that that's kind of weird, quite frankly. I think maybe two two performances, it wasn't dependent on the fact that I was was Asian. And a great Mm. deal of film and television is that way as well. Uh, maybe less so because if they're looking to just do this realistically, diversely, they just cast it, and and frequently I don't have to go in and say, "Hi, I'm I'm authentically Asian, so you can use me." Uh, but, <laughs> but in theater, absolutely. I mean, um, in this day and age, when people are trying to increase diversity and uh, increase opportunities, I mean, with the whole thing with Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. the Indigenous. Uh, projects that that uh, a lot of the larger theater companies like Stratford and Shaw have been trying to implement uh, ways to to uh, create more opportunities um, and mostly to decrease discrimination and and prejudice. Um, they still haven't gotten to a point where they can just open the doors to the best actor for the role, regardless of theater, regardless of of the play. Uh, unless it's really germane to the play, 
You know, it's, it's that kind of yeah. thing. I've always been a champion of non-traditional casting. That's what I started with back in, in the uh, the mid-80s. <clears throat> started to work with with uh, theater artists who were bound and determined to uh, make that happen. Non-traditional casting, the best actor for the role. Um, and that's where I started, you know, with, uh, with, with all of this. With My advocacy was because I needed to see people not being seen for the color they are or for the uh, the the race that they are or the their their disability but they that they can carry off this role and make it believable because as far as i'm concerned an audience is is always uh, as or more liberal than the people who are producing i mean producers mm-hmm. and directors think think that they are more progressive or more liberal than their audiences are and that that's not true um, so i think uh, because I haven't had the opportunity to just go out there and say, hi, I'm Brenda Camino. I was born and bred in Canada, in Toronto. My parents were born in Canada. Uh, what's the difference between me playing that role and somebody who's white and is born in Etobicoke? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's what I haven't been able to do, is to do mm. something with that kind of uh, freedom and that kind of um, lack of uh, consciousness. Conscious, my Consciously... Uh, focusing on my Asianness. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think I firmly believe that 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 audiences, especially theater audiences, I don't can't really speak for for film because you don't get a chance to see it. But I I feel like theater audiences don't care about what the people look like on stage. I agree. If we tell us, I if we tell us, agree. yeah, if we're told, so these people are our brother and sister. And they physically don't look alike. We'll just accept it. We'll fill in the blanks if we need to, but we mm-hmm. just sort of sit and we accept it. Absolutely. We don't need everybody to look alike. We don't actually need like the whole like, oh, these two look like they could be married. Let's just say that they're married. Well, it's it's interesting because mothers and fathers and sons and daughters don't mm. ever resemble each other in theater anyway. I mean, let's face it. There are four different actors in the family. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, producers and directors believe that they should all at least be the same color. Yes, which I find really interesting because what we're doing is sitting in seats, looking at a big black box and pretending that it's Elsinore, it's the North Pole or it's it's South America or it's an insane asylum. It's just a big imaginary box. And if you can take that imagination, take that that as far as you can, then why can't you do that with the face of an actor or the ability of an actor or the sexuality Mm -hmm. of an actor? You know, anything that. that uh, differentiates them from other people is, is 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 much more than the face. Yeah. I think that in theater, we are already predisposed because of what you described. We're already, the audience is predisposed to suspend quote unquote disbelief because we're not, we are looking at a black box and we're, sometimes we're looking at, there's a couch and now I'm supposed to assume that's a living room where there's whatever, there's all these things and we are informed things inform us of what the scene is but we fill in the blanks we just accept what's on the stage as as it's presented and because of that we don't need actors to be the same color we don't need actors to have the same hair we don't need we don't need that we just will accept them in the relationship that we're told they are that's right that's right i'm so glad you said that (laughs) (laughs) um i it one of the things that i like to do on the on the show is is to find out from people what i want to know what the your 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 theater origin story was what is what brought you to theater what was started you down the path to this career path well it's interesting because i didn't start wanting to be an actor i started wanting to be brenda lee i wanted to be the singer Um, I guess when I was about 10 or 11, decided that that's what I wanted to do because I could sing. And I thought, Mm. this is great. I can even imitate Brenda Lee. And she has the same first name as me, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I wanted to do until I started to see musicals. And I thought, oh, well, you can sing and you can act, but they're singing and there's music. And so I thought that would be great. And so I did a couple of musicals when I was in high school and uh, and thought, well, this is this is perfect. And then I did a straight play when I was in high school. I did. I was in an Antigone, and I thought, well, 
yeah, you don't need the music in order to do this. You could just act. And I guess it was when I was about 16, 17 years old that I decided that's what I want to do. I want to be an actor. So I kind of came by a very, very roundabout way to becoming an actor, a performer, a singer to start with, and then segued into that. And so I started to look around. This is, I don't know, um, 68 uh, when I was looking for what to do for post-secondary education, and I'm looking mm. around, and there's only one place to go, and that's the National Theatre School. Mm. And I thought, well, um, it's not going to be very likely that I'm going to be able to get in there. I mean, there's one theatre school that teaches just acting. So um, I thought, well, maybe I'll go to university and, and get an education and then join the theatre clubs. And, and then I'll have something to fall back on. And my mother said to me, you know, if you want to be an actor, you should go to a theater school. I said, so there's only one. And what am I going to do when I, you know, if I get turned down? So what I did was I went to university and thought I would save the world. In the meantime, I would go into uh, biology and chemistry and I would save all the dead lakes. I mean, this is long before uh, climate change and, and mm -hmm. the environment became important. But I thought, OK, I can, I can save dead lakes. And while I was there, um, I joined all the theater companies. So I did um, plays with McMaster Shakespearean players and with Proscenium, which was a musical group. So I did plays with with uh, Marty Short and, and and Dave Thomas and Eugene Levy. And and it was like, I mean, we were doing really dopey things. We were doing mm. Frankenstein, a rock musical that uh, Dave Thomas <laughs> wrote. Um, I helped produce uh, a couple of shows. We did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I produced. And Marty Short played Nick, which was really weird because it's usually played by a big um, kind of jock type of person. Um, and uh, we did all these great shows. And then I got kicked out of university for flunking first year twice because I wasn't putting in any work. And so the... Um, I got out and I thought, well, okay, I guess I, what I'm going to have to do is just look around for a you know, community theater company and see if I can do that. Mm. And my brother told me, oh, up where I live, up by York University, there's a theater company that's doing uh, Ionesco plays. And I went, ugh, I hate Ionesco <laughs> plays. But, you know, I thought, well, maybe it's, it's a start. So I joined this little group and we did plays for three or four years and they were I thought that they were great we competed you know with the other community groups and we had a great time but in the meantime I'm thinking well I can't keep doing the community work and working on the side which is what I was doing I was working for the feds the the uh, Canadian government and after working for them for four years I knew if I don't get out of there I'm going to be stuck so I went to the Banff School of Fine Arts for two summers 77 and 78 came out and said, okay, I'm an actor. Hmm. So <laughs> hmm. kind of a long way to feel about it, but that's how yeah. it happened. Now, when you were younger, when you were thinking that you were going to be a singer, mm -hmm. and when you get in, before you discovered the musicals and theater, when you went into high school, were you still saying, like, I'm going to be a singer, or did you have something else in mind before acting became a thing? No, I mean, you know, in my generation, we were like, well, I'll be a nurse, or I'll be a a teacher or something like that but um mm. i wanted to be a singer i mm. wanted to be a singer up until the time i was about 15 or 16 and then i mm -hmm. switched over to musical singer musical theater person and it wasn't until i actually you know started going to university that i thought well you know this that's what my life is going to be but, you know, it took a long time for me to get there. It took a long time for me to actually find myself in a position to be an actor. Because, like I said, there was nowhere for me to train properly until I got to Banff. You had to audition. They did cross-country auditions. And I went, you know, beginner class first year, uh, intermediate class second year. And before my second year started, I started working professionally mm. by accident because I'm Asian. Hmm. So, so I was still training uh, in between. Uh, I was still I was acting between my two training summers. But no, I and so the, you you initially found started getting work because because you were Asian. Oh yeah, 
My my mm. first job was Israel Horowitz's, uh, the primary English class. Israel Horowitz just passed away about two weeks ago. So mm. we were um, we were all mindful of that particular show because the show came out of uh, New York and a theater called Open Circle Theater, which doesn't exist anymore in Toronto, which did all politically uh, motivated plays, decided to produce this. And uh, um, I had first auditioned for them when I was when I was still working. And they didn't cast me. But by the next year, it had been co- become uh, popular enough that they were going to send it out on a uh, Ontario tour. Mm. So I auditioned for the Ontario tour and did the Ontario tour. And the role was a young Japanese girl. Mm. All the roles in it spoke a different language except for one character. There was a German, a Frenchman, an Italian, an old Chinese lady and a young Japanese girl. Um, a, a, a Ukrainian um, uh, fellow in the hall and one person, a woman who spoke English. And the whole thing mm-hmm. was done in those languages. I did not speak Japanese. I learned it all phonetically. Mm-hmm. I spent an hour and a half on stage speaking Japanese that I learned phonetically. And it was only because I was Japanese that I got the role. Mm-hmm. Did uh, anybody mistake you for a uh, for an, anybody who actually spoke Japanese mistake you for a native Japanese speaker? Oh no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I, I just finished an audio book, which is the only job I've had since the shutdown, uh, which has a very very strong Japanese Canadian um, content to it, and uh, uh, there's a lot of Japanese being spoken in this book. Uh, not all the time, so I could just use my regular voice to narrate as this character, but frequently these Japanese phrases would kick in, and I had to learn them phonetically, and I'm not mm-hmm. as good as I used to be, so I know mm-hmm. that by the time they get to listen to the stuff, they're going to come back at me and say, okay, you have to come back and do all the Japanese again. Nobody ever mistakes <laughs> me for being Japanese. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so essentially, essentially, I mean... You got you got the role not because of particular ability, just because of how you looked. Pretty well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was one actor who was better than me for the original cast, mm. and she was staying with the original cast with the while the Ontario tour was going out and about. So mm. there were two of us, two Japanese mm. girls in Toronto <laughs> who were actors. And I wasn't even professional at the time. I mean, I didn't have my my equity card or anything like that. So I think that's you know, it was sort of partially because I had done a little, little uh, film work and was able to join ACTRA and then I got to join Equity and, you know, it's all of that sort of thing, just for, fortuitous, the order of things. Hmm. Hmm. Now you were, you did, uh, you've done a bunch of television um, and also uh, you were on some, some of the, you know, the I would say famous Canadian shows like Train Forty Eight and and things like that. Oh, that was that. a great show. That's a great. Yeah, show. yeah. Um, in terms of uh, the diversity work that you do, mm-hmm. um, how did you get started? Some, I mean, obviously you're you're Asian, so there's diversity in like in your life. It's almost a stupid question, but like, how did you decide? How did you begin doing the work and working with people on diversity? Well, um, I had always been bemoaning the fact that I could never, for example, play Linda in Death of a Salesman. I mean, some of these wonderful uh, world theater pieces that require you to be white in order to be in these, these plays, I couldn't play them. And I said to my husband, you know what? We should produce our own production. We should do an all-Asian cast of Death for Salesman, and I could play Linda, and Bob could play Willie Loman. And he said, wait, 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 you know, if, if, if you're going to do that, then that's just more exclusion. Hmm. If you were to do a totally diverse production, I'd be there. So we thought, okay, well, what could we do then? And we, we set about starting a theater company, in the meantime, Canadian Actors' Equity had formed um, a bunch of small committees to uh, address the problem of diversity in theater. And out of that came the uh, Committee for um, 
it, 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 for non-traditional casting, what we did at Equity is we produced a symposium, a three-day symposium on non-traditional casting where we had uh, producers and directors come in from the U.S., from across Canada. We presented eight scenes non-traditionally, everything from from a, a Michel Tremblay through to a, a Shakespeare. Um, and we did this two-day symposium. Um, but before that actually came about, Scott and I were putting together Emerald City, which is our theater company, to do non-traditional casting. And what we did was we were going to produce private lives. And everybody said to me, well, of course, you're going to play Amanda. I said, no, no, I'm just going to produce this. So we hired a director and we had a totally diverse cast. We had the late Dennis Simpson playing the uh, the Noel Coward role. Uh, Sam Moses uh, played the the other male role. We had um, a woman who is um, multiracial from originally from uh, the Mediterranean. Helen Claire Tingling was playing Sybil. We had one white actress and she played Amanda. We had Victor uh, Victor Wong playing Louise Louis, the uh, the uh, houseboy. And uh, we decided that's what we were going to do. So we raised money for that. We raised money for it and we put it on the factory theater. And in the meantime, the, the governments are saying, well, no, we've already funded one of these things. So we can't fund the, the equity thing. It's like old news. And we went, it's not old news. Nobody's doing it. Mm. So, uh, so just after we did, we did the, the production, and we got slammed for it. We got slammed for taking it out of the neighborhoods that it is supposed to occur in. And mm. we pulled it into to, uh, Canada, uh, 20th century, and uh, we just got killed. We got absolutely killed for it because it was, for them, no longer a museum piece of Noel Coward was threatening to come. Mm. And uh, so I went with that into producing the symposium as the head of the committee, and it was spectacular, the kind of support we got from across the country. And we thought, this is amazing. Everybody is coming in and being so positive about it. And we did it, we held it, and it was success, success, and nothing changed. Mm -hmm. So it turned into be a bigger job than any of us thought was going to, you thought it was going to be. Uh, um, ACTRA formed uh, a committee as well, and Sandy Ross headed up the uh, the film versions of the symbo- symposium. Um, it was spectacular, and everybody thought it was wonderful, and nothing changed. No, we're talking, talking uh, 1988, 89, 90, 91 in there, mm-hmm. and things were just not changing. There was there was no movement. Um, groups were performing specific uh, plays that addressed communities, but nobody was looking at actors for anything other than that. Mm-hmm. So I spent the last 30 years just sort of hammering at that. I mean, every once in a while you go, it's time for me to get off this and, you know, uh, and, and stop doing this because I'm getting tired, but you can't. Yeah. You absolutely cannot do that. So, you know, yeah. for, for many years, um, I've been seeing, um, quote unquote, uh, diversity panels and, you know, people will get together and they'll bring diverse performers on stage and we'll talk about diversity on stage and what needs to change. And everybody in the room will nod. And often it's put on by, uh, one of the established theaters and everybody who's representing the theater nods and says, yes, things have to change. And then a year later, there's another another panel at another theater with the same people saying mm-hmm. the same thing. And everybody's nodding and saying something has to change. And it's exactly what you've been what you've been saying, that everybody says something has to change and then does nothing. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what has changed, though. There have been more more plays involving different communities. I mean, uh, and I think that's incredibly important. I think it's incredibly important that Obsidian continues its work in bringing, uh, you know, young black playwrights to the foreground so that they can actually 
get the work out there and people can get experience and the like. Um, but that that's not enough. As far as mm. I'm concerned, in the cities, it's not enough to have culturally specific theater. It needs to be more across the board. It, it took a very long time for that to happen at Stratford. And it makes no sense because if you can't do it with Shakespeare, what can you do with Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so absolutely. obvious that you can do this with Shakespeare. Men, men were playing women, for God's sakes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And white yeah. people were always playing colored people. And, you know, I mean, yes. I, I, I don't think the Moor of Venice was ever, ever uh, played by a black person until, you know, modern day. But uh, if you can't do it with those plays, then when can you do it? And and I don't want to see just ethnically specific plays. I want to see everyone being cast equally mm -hmm. for their talent or their experience. I have thought, I mean, I've been saying for, for a while now that, that, um, the, the, what we see on the theater should be representative and, and, and look like what we see on the street. Oh, or, or so on the subway. Or on the sub, absolutely on the subway. You know, here I live in Toronto, same as you. And, and when I go out, I see a multicultural city with multicolored people. And I, I, I want to see that on stage. Yeah. I want to see, um, I want to see uh, a, an entirely person of color Shakespeare. I want to see a jumble of, of, of different ethnicities. I want to see it all. Um, but the, what the gatekeepers who are predominantly white and predominantly older, let's face that um, have been sort of resistant to that. And it's taken new blood in a number of the theaters to say, wait a second, this can happen. Um, you are right about about most of that. Uh, mm. But when you think about the fact that our major theaters in Toronto are being run by women of color, yes, that's a very recent thing. That's what I'm saying. It's is that, is brand, that... It, it is a brand new thing? But the thing also is that, and you know, I'm going to get killed for this, but um, not just bringing in more uh, creators, theater creators. Uh, you know, more di diverse array uh, uh, of, of theater creators, but to make sure that the participants on stage get to play um, roles written by white guys, you know, mm -hmm. maybe the new mm -hmm. white guy doesn't want to do, do uh, um, you know, he, it's not, I don't want to see cultural appropriation. I don't right. want to see people, um, uh, giving a role that belongs to an Asian to a to to a, 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 a an East East Indian if the story happens to be about this particular Asian community. I mean mm. that's wrong, but because we've got more and more um, powerful women of color in these the theaters, mm -hmm. um, the plays are being defaulted to cultures that may not necessarily they don't address my complaint. They don't mm. address what I worry about. I don't address that I look at my resume and I say, look at all those roles where I played an Asian person or mm -hmm. I played mm -hmm. the exotic person. It doesn't address that. Now, right. we have white writers. For example, Maya Ardell wrote Her Two, which was a play about um, the first drug trial for Herceptin, uh, which was to treat breast cancer. And it was uh, it was about a a, a a test group who were all undergoing this new drug, and apparently this drug was a game changer back in the day that when it was uh, it was uh, created. But she had written in it uh, different ethnicities to make sure that roles were going to be, you know, open. Mm -hmm. Roles were going to actually uh, that, that the play was actually going to be diverse. So she will deliberately. She deliberately did that to make sure that that would happen on stage. I don't know uh, that there are a lot of directors, not, not directors, a lot of uh, producer directors, who will go against the choices of a writer. If a writer has decided that he's writing a play about, you know, um, this neighborhood in Montreal, mm -hmm. um, that that 
you you are not going to be able to convince that writer that they, this should be completely diverse. They should, they should mm. break up the families, even they, that they should include um, all, the, all include possibilities for all the roles. Mm. It's that's that's I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. Honest to God. <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't know that you are. I don't know that you are. I think, you know, I think that, that, you know, it's like, it's like you said with Shakespeare, like with Shakespeare, there is no reason why we can't have that. We can't have, we can have a black King Lear. We can have uh, uh, an, an Asian lady Macbeth. We, like it, like the entire cast can be made up of, of different, 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 different ethnicities. And that there's no reason why for the most part that can't happen with most plays that are written quote unquote for white people, because the only reason why they're written for white people is not, it's not specified in the play that they're, that they're, that no, they're Caucasian. But it, it defaults, it's just because there's a white default. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's an assumption that's often made, that's made by the producer, the director, the artistic director. And that could very easily be changed. That could very easily, somebody could just say, wait, we don't have to make all these people white. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the film I made, uh, Glass Castle, which uh, starred Brie Larson, who won the Oscar for for Room. Mm-hmm. Um, I, did, I haven't seen it, no, but, but it was it was a kind of amazing. I had been cast to go to Montreal. I did the, the, did the notorious self tape for that and got cast mm. from that. I got there and the director thought I could have kissed him. He was this half Asian guy from Hawaii. Um, named Destin Critton. And what really kills me is that he said, you know, I took the book, I adapted it. Um, and there was absolutely no reason why any of these characters needed to be uh, white. Uh, so I thought, well, this character and that character, these, you know, I can just cast it. Mm. And he had the worst time trying to cast it because he was casting it in Montreal and could not find enough diverse diversity in their mm. English speaking actors there and had to go to Toronto. I said, you can mm. come to Canada, do more films. He said, no, no, I can't cast. I said, come to Toronto. <laughs> um, but uh, that was one where the, uh, the, the man who adapted and also directed had decided all these characters were just going to be whoever he saw and he liked. And that's the first time I've ever seen that happen. Um, mm. And it doesn't, doesn't happen enough. Um, it's happening more in film and TV now, especially since all the shit hit the fan about Black Lives Matter, that mm-hmm. uh, they were being very, very aggressive about making sure they were bringing in more people of different uh, different uh, hues and, and backgrounds to be, to be considered for these roles. So, you know, that's made a huge difference. Um, the, the difference that's made in theater has been that more stories are being brought out that mm-hmm. address the communities that have been overlooked, the uh, the minority um, uh, um, ones that have had no access before, mm. and that's where that's what's resulted uh, on the on the, the stage. You know, I I think that you know, thinking back to what you were saying about playwrights specifying different ethnicities in their plays. Um, for roles rather than leaving it blank so that somebody can just go, oh, I use the white default. Um, I sometimes think that maybe playwrights don't realize the power they have oh, when you're right. they write. Yes, you're right. If they specify an ethnicity or they say this role is, is meant to be played by a black woman, this role is meant to be played by an Asian man, all like this is that is going to be fulfilled by the company that is written in stone now. And that that is uh, that is almost like forcing diversity on the theater rather than not specifying it so that they can just say, well, since it's not specified, I guess they're white. Yep. Yep. Uh, oh, that, OK, well, that, that's interesting because I'm just thinking about that. You know, you, you have a play and you have a cast. And so someone uh, thinks, well, so and so would make. A good, so, you know, so they start to cast the play, and if they don't specify the ethnicity, as you say, they could default to white. Wherein, when you're filming film and TV these days, the breakdowns that come out say, "Please 
cast as diversely as possible, or they say this role, uh, we're looking for somebody who is not white. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They they specify that when they send their breakdowns out to the agents. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, (laughs) it's very interesting that that's happening. And I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, but I think I mean that's that's definitely something that's happening in in the course of of the production that's sort of that's saying that and I think that we that you know we can see more of that like if it's not happening native like like on its own in the theater then playwrights can force it. Mm-hmm. They can. Uh, one of the things that happened at the uh, the symposium was that uh, Sharon Pollock, um, a playwright, had said in response to uh, a remark that a director had made that, well, we have to respect the playwright's choices. Um, And she got up to the microphone and said, you know, nobody's ever asked me. I've never gotten uh, any deference about casting. Mm. So I don't know what you're talking about. We have to adhere to what the playwright has written, Mm -hmm. what the playwright would, uh, would choose to be as casting. And uh, and that and that's absolutely true. You know, we we tend to sort of blame someone else for our our lack of imagination. Hmm. And I think yeah. imagination it's harder, much harder, to cast diversely than it is to cast non diversely. Difficult. Sure, but it's worth it. Oh yeah, I think. I think you know uh, there's there's the inherent racism in opening a play that doesn't specify an ethnicity for the characters and assuming that everybody is white. Yeah. And that is that's pretty common. Oh, it is very very common. Ah, oh, but how do you change that, you know? I mean I think that that part of me has been saying for years that like as new 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 younger people start taking over theaters and existing theaters that that in theory we should see something as the old guard sort of like relinquishes the keys to the gates but um i think that that you know with black lives matter and all of the statements about diversity that every theater in this country made um they made commitments and when the pandemic is over if they don't if they don't honor those commitments, then they have to be reminded that they made commitments. Mm-hmm. Cause there will be hell to pay because everybody's watching now. Absolutely. I think, I think some of them, you know, there's the chance that some might be thinking, well, we did that a few months ago and 2020 is like a year that feels like 10. So maybe nobody will remember, <laughs> but we all know that they all did it. They all made a statement. They did. And so when it's all over, uh, and people are back in the theaters. If we just see more white people on stage, off stage, and everywhere else on the theater, then we know that that was just words, and we have to remind them that the, their words have meaning. That's right. That's absolutely right. It's so funny though, because uh, when you're talking about trying to do well, realistic casting, essentially, I guess. Hmm. Um, what I used to love to do, and and you know, this shows you where my head is always at is sit on the subway and start to count number of uh, non-white people to number of white people on the subway. And I go one out of two, three out of four, six out of seven, seven out of eight, 10 out of 11, 12 out of 13, 15 out of 16, 25 out of 27, you know, in mm-hmm. the subway train. Because I am still trying to convince myself that uh, what we see is what we should get. Yeah. And we ain't getting it. No, no, we ain't. Um, just sort of like, as we sort of like point our noses towards the end here, um, as the pandemic started, were you, did you have stuff on the go that, that didn't get to come to fruition or, or what happened in March for you? In March, I was waiting on a, uh, on, on the word, of a third season of Carter, the uh, series that I've been doing. And so that's essentially what I was holding my breath for. I had just come mm-hmm. all out of Montreal um, at the end of February when the pandemic was beginning and I'd done a workshop there and was coming back and getting ready to wait to see if I was going to spend the summer filming. Mm-hmm. Um, things did not fall apart for me as they did for so many of my friends. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, one friend was did an opening night 
in mm. uh, in Montreal and then closed the next yeah. day. And they kept them in town for three weeks while they said, no, no, we're going to open, we're going to open. Um, I know a number of people who were slated to go to Stratford and uh, for the first season. And that didn't happen. We, my, um, Andrew Moody and I produce uh, theater and we're going to be doing a, uh, a production of Riot in the, in the future. And we had a bunch of wonderful young black actors, actresses uh, for a workshop virtually. And, and so many of them had just lost probably the biggest job of their career. Hmm. And it makes mm. my heart just go out to them. I mean, I'm an old broad, so I don't get to do all that much anyway. Carter was the biggest thing, and it was going to be, if it had been a third season, it just would have been astonishing, but uh, mm. it just wasn't to be. So I was fairly lucky in as much as I was spending a fair amount of time at home anyway. I'm Like I said, I'm an old lady, so I don't work as much as I used to. Um, but when the pandemic started to loosen up and things started to go into productions, for Two weeks, I was sending in self-tapes daily. It was mm. really, really insane. I didn't get any of those jobs, mm. and suddenly everything all dropped off. I think in the beginning when they were trying to really push the, the diversity in casting, I think everybody who was an actor of color was getting opportunities, uh, the likes of which they had not seen. It was just kind of amazing to see that. But, uh, you know, other than the, uh, the huge influx of auditions starting in September, I didn't lose out the way some did. Mm. I feel very badly for those who, uh, who are mourning either producing yeah. something or starting a big gig. That's so hard. Yeah. Um, one of the questions that I've been asking to, to everybody who comes on the show and I've been asking since March is about joy because there's been, you know, I don't know about you, but in March, I must have spent several weeks doom scrolling on my phone and just sort of like panic scrolling and my eyes growing wide and anxiety in the air. Mm -hmm. But joy has become so much more important for all of us to sort of to, to acknowledge and to look at. So um, the question is, what has been giving you joy the last few months? Um, I What's been giving me joy in the last few months has been able to to hear from friends that are doing doing okay, that are doing well. Um, my specific joy is that my son came home from Seattle. He's been living there for five years and was going to come home this in August, and he just got home two weeks ago. Um, so my joy is that my family is back together. Uh, my my joy has been when I hear of people whose families have stayed together and have stayed stayed. Uh, uh, together and safe. Hmm. Um, I feel a great deal of joy when I know that everyone on my Facebook horizon is being smart hmm. um, and holding each other up. And uh, the ones who are living alone can continually reach out and get feedback on anything that they're going through mentally, because hmm. let's face it, we're all facing hardships because it's really tough to not do yeah. what you want to do. And when you see all the madness out there, and when you see how stupid people are being, particularly south of the border, but even here in our own city, that mm -hmm. uh, that we can all sort of band together and say, okay, this too shall pass because mm -hmm. we've got each other. And I'm really, really quite grateful that all the theater creators are being twice as creative now. With the, with the writing, I mean, I've joined one small group of uh, of uh, older actresses and creators uh, who want to just make this uh, an experience that uh, that we make work for us. So the pandemic has brought us all together on Zoom. Uh, mm. It's brought uh, theater creators who didn't give much time to the creation because they were so busy doing something else. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, it gives me a huge amount of joy to see that happen and to see that that uh, the larger theaters are, are all endeavoring to keep their communities engaged, to keep their audiences engaged. Uh, um, uh, my friend Jacoba Knappen, who uh, runs the, uh, the TTA, says um, it's going to be very interesting uh, after all of this because we've got a lot of young audiences tuning in to the virtual mm -hmm. performances. 
and people of our generation, she meaning she and I, we're tolerating it. That generation yeah. is tolerating virtual performances and waiting mm-hmm. to get back into the theaters. Um, so she says it's going to be interesting when when it goes back to normal. Do we hang on to those audiences? Do we do we um, uh, create something that the twenty to thirty year old will continue to see uh, as we get our older people back into the theaters? Uh, it's it's just really interesting to see how creative everyone's being to keep people engaged. So mm. my joy comes from watching how busy everybody has been keeping. Mm. On the topic of, 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 of how do you keep the younger people who are watching theater virtually, um, I think it's a great opportunity to, to invite them into the theater. You've been watching this online. Come check it out. Yep. Um, also, I do kind of feel like the 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 virtual stuff, especially some of the stuff that people are doing from theaters, some of the stuff the theater uh, that 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 factory theater is doing this year, and broadcasting theater. I think that there's a lot of potential in growing an audience that way. Yeah, I think broadcast so. live from the theater and 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 let people watch and and you know you get people who can't physically get to the theater, but you also allow people across Canada and the world to experience the theater that's happening happening here yeah, and I we get to grow that so way. Important. Uh, yeah. Toronto has been rather a, a snobby uh, theater town in as much as a lot of stuff that gets done somewhere else first won't get mm-hmm. done in Toronto. But mm-hmm. I think it's important for that stuff to be seen in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. we can get all of that and they can get all of us, I think the exchange is going to be very, very helpful to cross pollinate um, our, our artwork across the country. Let's face it, we we don't we live in Toronto, and a lot of people don't like Toronto because we are so snotty here about our things. Yes, yeah, you know it's funny because years ago I did a, I did a, a fringe tour, and there were a number of artists who 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 started their fringe tour in Winnipeg. They oh. specifically would avoid the Toronto fringe. They'd heard <laughs> bad things about about the Toronto and how Toronto only cared about Toronto people. And so if you were touring. Why, why, why bother? But I saw so many things that I thought that Toronto was missing out on because of our navel gazing, because of the, the, the way that we don't like stuff that comes from somewhere else. Well, and we were missing some like incredible stuff. stuff. It's not that they don't like it. It's just that if somebody else perform, um, produced it first, it's not a premiere. Mm. So it's really tough to get it done. Uh, as an original piece in Toronto after it's been premiered in Winnipeg or in Calgary or down east. Uh, there aren't, it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know. Well, it's funny though, because we'll fall over ourselves to premiere something that, that was that was on Broadway. Yeah. Or in London. Or in London. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only exception has been uh, when um, things that are done up at the Blythe Festival would come down and be done at Passamaray, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, that, mm-hmm. made, that made that perfect sense. It was sort of like, almost like they were feeding Passamaray. Yes. Uh, and that made a lot of sense to do that, you know. But uh, other than that, I don't see a whole heck of a lot of stuff that gets done outside of Toronto that uh, gets brought in to do just no. the Toronto premiere. Yeah, no, that's very true. Brenda, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you. It's been kind of fun. 